You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Today we introduce a second weekly podcast on top of our Thursday wrap-up of the news of the week. On Tuesdays, we'll be uploading a more in-depth conversation. We start today with Gold 104.3 Melbourne's Christian O'Connell. His book, Nobody Listens to Your Dad's Show, is on sale today. Now, it's been nearly two years since Christian last joined us on the Mumbrella cast. Since then, his show, On Gold in Melbourne, has hit number one in FM. And this week, he published his memoir of his first couple of years in Australia, no one listens to your dad's show. Now, Christian, welcome back. I really enjoyed the book and it also surprised me a bit. Um, you shared a lot about your own vulnerabilities. You talk a bit about the mental health challenges that you you faced in the UK um, and since getting here, you know, the stress of being here. Um, I was wondering in the, in the writing process, how early in that process did you decide that that was something you were willing to share? Yeah, it's interesting, right, Tim? So, um, thank you uh, for saying that you enjoyed the book. I, uh, yeah, I'm a storyteller, you know, and have always been doing radio like that for almost 23 years, more so since I moved to Australia. But I, I love telling stories, and the big thing about love telling them on the radio, and even the same the way I do stand up as well is I love hearing. I use my stories to get stories for the from the audience members as well, you know, from the callers, emails, and stuff like that. But this is always, people always ask me, why did you move to Australia? And I've always said, look, it was a midlife thing. And, and some of that's true. My wife and I were getting, our life suddenly felt a bit too small and restrictive. And it felt like all the exciting stuff had happened. And my next move in commercial radio would be a sideways move to a kind of the same kind of show. And I'd like, you know, two and a half million listeners. It was the number one commercial radio show in the UK. Um, I kind of had it all. And then... I had these, these anxiety attacks, and um, I've never talked about them publicly. In fact, um, it's only in the last couple of days I've had to tell my mum and dad that it actually happened because, um, spoiler alert, there's a book coming out. So in a very me way, I've gone from silence to now talking about it and a book coming out both sides of the, of the world at the same time. So the real reason why I did it was like I always thought I'd write a book one day because so much happened uh, moving out here. It's a crazy story. It's still ongoing. But I thought if I tell the story, I'll have to be really honest. And I think I'd shied away from that. I felt ashamed, to be honest. That's why I didn't tell my friends. Best friends only found out the last couple of weeks, mum and dad. And it's a, maybe it's a man thing. I don't know. I actually just felt ashamed, to be honest. And and then about a year and a half ago, my daughters, they're into their teens. And that early time of the teens is really hard, especially for girls. And suddenly I was saying to them about how important it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say you're struggling and, you know, and I'm trying to connect with them on that level. And then one of them said to me, but you, you know, you, you, you never struggle. You know, you get up every morning, you're really funny. You don't know what it's like. And so I thought, crikey, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm not living what I'm expecting them to do myself. And so I thought, well, um, uh, I started to talk to them about it. And I did. I started to say, look, this happened to me about five or six years ago. And then uh, I thought, I've, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna write the story now. I'm going to actually honor what, I, what I'm trying to encourage to show them. And so it was really hard because as you've read the book, it's there in the first couple of chapters, you meet me at my worst. Not the king, you know, not number one, but just terrified. Literally in the post room of my radio station, 15, 16 minutes before going on air to a couple of million people all over the UK, and I can't go in. And I've never had any fear, uh, you know, about doing my radio show. And I thought, if I don't start the book here, <laughs> right? That's, um, I'm, 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 I'm going to convince myself not to once I get up and running. And so that was, it was really, it was a really, someone asked me the day what my biggest gamble was in my life. Was it moving to Australia? Yeah, that's the biggest gamble. The next biggest gamble was this bloody book. And it became like that at times. My wife kept saying, don't put those first couple of chapters in. I think it will, you'll find it upsetting again, talking about it where I went, but I have to. I don't want. I'm, I don't just want to write a bunch of funny stories that would bore me. I, I. This is my next 
challenge, I thought, as a as a storyteller. Because I think all of us have got some story we don't really want to tell. And sometimes that's actually the most interesting story about any of us. And so I'm terrified of the book coming out. I'm also really excited. Um, I think it's an amazing opportunity to start a conversation. The whole book isn't some, you know, and I even keep saying in the book, it does get better, by the way. But this, you know, you brought this thing thinking, he's a really funny guy. I want some funny stories. There are. But I've also got hopefully something that I want to say. And it's not a self-help book. There's no techniques to get your way out of any of this. And it will happen to all of us at some point. You'll hit some struggle in your life. But this was just my story. It's a unique one about doing a radio show. But I went and got help and um, I grew through it and then had a very strange response to having anxiety attacks. It was like, I know what would be really great idea. When I move to somewhere that's even more competitive, where they're going to hate me for the first year because I'm not from there. I don't speak like them. I didn't grow up with the TV shows. I didn't grow up with their sport. And they've got a funny relationship with the people where I come from. But that is what I did. I moved to Australia, as you know, Tim. And I did struggle for the first year on air and at home. You know, how could you not? I just remember driving from the airport when we landed here, holding one-way tickets. I've never had a one-way ticket. And you're holding them not just for me, but my two daughters and my wife. And it was all on me making this work. There was no plan B. We'd sold the house in the UK. I'd walked out of that show. They literally said, name your price. And I'm the only person who in that situation doesn't. Um, But I saw these posters everywhere. And I mean everywhere. I've never had that kind of marketing in the UK. And that's when I start to realize, oh, shit, this is... They're crazy. And then it was like, the ratings are out every five weeks. And then it was like, if you in the, mo- the first six months, most important, if you're not working the first six months, you've lost it. It's over. And I was like, what? Um, so yeah, that's, it was, a, it was a scary thing, but also really exciting, Tim. It's an honor to be able to tell you a story. Books are something, radio is ephemeral. I always know that. No matter how good you can get one day show, there's another one tomorrow. There's five more next week. It's it's popcorn, you know, and hopefully my popcorn has got a different flavor to the others that are around. And sometimes I hope it does leave a bit more than a, a taste that disappears like bubble gum. I like being able to do light and shade on the radio and make it as much about real life as possible. And I guess this is carrying that on, uh, was, was writing this story. And look, and I, hey, look, it's interesting. I I think of, you know, books I've read recently, you know, just interviewed Sam Mack a couple of weeks ago. He talks a lot about mental health there as well. Um, and look, you know, I know we're, we're both Bruce Springsteen fans and his book, he talks a lot about his therapy journey. I must admit that was, I, I, I just wonder whether the more kind of male role models who supposedly you'd think should have everything sorted out, the better it is for everybody perhaps to talk about it. Yeah. And again, I'll go back to being a dad. It isn't, I used to just want to be like Superman to my kids and that's great fun. Carrying them up to bed every night. Dad, you're so strong. And actually being superhuman or seen as that when they're teenagers and they're struggling, like all teenagers do and we did, that isn't good for your relationship. And actually it actually creates a wall between you that, and it's fake, you know. It's, honestly, there's a, there's suddenly a moment when your kids hit teenagers where they just, it's like they break character and they go, you don't know what you're doing. You know, you're making it all up. You're just as scared. You're just as scared as us in there. And you're like, how did you know? We've been watching you the whole time. And it's quite interesting to say, yeah, I struggle sometimes, but it doesn't limit what I do. I'll still get up tomorrow morning on the radio show. I got to come here to Australia and it was a tough first year, but I'm still here. And sometimes in life, you're going to, you, just because you're struggling or just because it's hard doesn't mean it's impossible. And sometimes the other side of that is this amazing life changing. And that's what's happened to me. Sure, it's been a struggle, but I chose it. I sought this out. You know, you mustn't feel sorry for me. I sought this out. I could have stayed where I was. Trust me, there were many times in the first year where I was like, why why didn't I? It was so, well, the thing that I left because it was gotten too easy suddenly it seemed like an enviable position. When will this get easy? There's a reason why they call it a comfort zone. Who leaves, unless you're Tony Robbins, and I'm not Tony Robbins, who leaves a comfort zone in your mid-40s? But it's been the most challenging, but also the most enjoyable thing I've ever done in my life. And I've done some great radio. I've been really proud of the radio I've done. I've been through radio in lots of different versions of me, but the last three years here have been my favourite favorite times on the radio show. 
Have you carried on accessing therapy since you got to Australia? Because I imagine it's it's hard to find a therapist the first time round. You you find the connections with someone you can work with, and then having to start all over again with somebody else must be quite daunting as well. I suspect you'll love this, right? So if you read the book, you'll know that my, the therapist that I found, the man in the shed, was Tim. Genuinely, hand on heart, a man who worked out of a shed. You know, and it was a very nice shed, but it was a shed at the bottom of his garden. And you'd, I'd meet you. I'd have to get there five years before. I'd sit in his shed, waiting for him to turn up and work the shed magic out. Um, and so it, we became really close friends, you know, because you saw a lot of him. And he was, he was a really funny guy as well. I got on really well with him. And at the end of it, he said, look, you know this is going to be hard when you get to Australia. I'm always there if you want to chat. And so for the first six months, often, maybe once or twice a month, we'd Skype. He'd be in the shed. And I remember a couple of times he was trying not to laugh, right? I was really, I spent about almost an hour of our session just reading out these really angry emails from Australians, one of which said, no one invited you. And it was, you, you, I, I, I knew I was like a grown up. You can't out, you're still a human being. I, I, I felt like that kid at school. Do you remember the, there was always that one kid that your mum made you, made you invite to your party? Cause she felt, so, I thought, is that me? No one, no one invited me and they hadn't invited me. I had turned up uninvited, but so I did see him a couple of times and then it was just so hard, the distance and the time. And I didn't, um, but a lot of the stuff that he, that I learned through him and some of the techniques I learned through other people, the breathing techniques, I still do that or try to do it, uh, every day as a kind of, cause it's a daily thing really. Once something's happened like that, you gotta, you gotta, it's your responsibility to look after yourself. So you 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 took the decision to to look for a, a job in Australia. The you know the the leap into a new challenge, something different. And you you talk in the book about being in Amsterdam to speak at a radio conference and having a secret meeting with an Australian radio executive who you thought was going to offer you a job. And the quote he gave you was, "Every time you open your mouth." People will hate you. And I'm, I'm wondering, was that motivating later once you got the job with another network? You know, did you kind of think, right, I'm going to make him feel like the man who turned down the Beatles? No, I tell you what it was, though. And that, that actually did happen. And I thought, yeah, he's, he must be right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I never known anyone whose English go over there and be really successful. So I was like, yeah. But then I remember telling my wife, I went, look, he, he, he said, he, you know, they'll just hate me every time I, I speak. It's a bit of a, you know, it's, a pretty, it's not black and white. This is saying don't come. And uh, my wife said, how many times do people tell you no at the start of your career or even before you ever got into radio? I went, well, at one point I had, and I'm not making this, I had 18 letters of rejection. My mum threw, threw them away one day because she said it was too dark. She was right. She didn't me shoes. I was listening to Joy Division and The Cure nonstop reading rejection letters. <laughs> Again, Tony Robbins, I don't think that's one of his like five steps to greatness, to wallowing in, in rejection letters. And so I said, you're right, you're right. And so I I kept trying and, and, and someone did offer me a job. And I just wanted to try and make what I did out here undeniably me and just, I guess, so engaging over time that they would want to have a conversation with me. I remember the week before it went out, Andy Lee took me and Jack Post out for breakfast. He said to me, how will you know when it's working? I went, when they're calling in. And I wasn't joking. I mean, that means they're starting to talk to me. Um, and I remember at the end of the first week or the second week, 10 lines were going and we weren't giving away any cash prizes. And I took a photo of it. I've still got it. And even in the tough times, I kept looking at that photo, just like, it is, let's get right, it is happening. Some people are talking to you and I can, I know I've been, when it's at that stage, I know the thing is just to show up every day and every day. And that's hard when you're getting the ratings every five weeks and they're not where you'd like them to be. And it does take time sometimes for the market to catch up with where you are, where you hope you are. Um, but yeah, there's a, that same person apparently was in a big meeting room somewhere in Australia, played back a couple of my links on the first show and said he won't last six months. And the person telling me that said, sorry, I went, you don't know what you've done. This is amazing. <laughs> it's like John Wick to me, someone killing my dog. I wrote down unlikely. I renamed our show producers WhatsApp group, The Unlikelies. It's still called that to this day. That's a motivating energy. 
I, I use that. Well, I think everyone in the industry is going to try and guess who it was. So I won't tell you. It won't. It won't. You'd get it within three. I think you would. Well, you mentioned in the book that it was Andy Lee who set you up for the chat and that he'd worked for the same company. So that says Southern Cross Stereo. You mentioned that it was a radio conference just before you came. So I'm thinking 2017 in Amsterdam. Stop and you it. mentioned that this person. <laughs> this is like uh, this is like Hangman, and I don't like this. Okay. <laughs> Well, you mentioned this person spoke at this conference in 2017. Tim, Tim, I'm very close to hanging up. (laughs) So I can't help but notice that Triple M's boss, Mike Fitzpatrick, was speaking at the conference that year. Um, So I guess my question is, would you have worked out at Triple M? I've got no idea. I've got no idea. You know, we're never be, we're, we will never know, will we? I've never heard of such a person, uh, or have I? I do know that man. All I will say is, um, uh, he, I actually thank him later on the, in the book at the end, and he does deserve thanks. And we still joke about, I'm not saying it is that person, but we joke about it now. Um, the man who turned down the Beatles. <laughs> it's not really that, though, is it? <laughs> Even in my deluded ego and you have to have one to do what i do even i can't accept that that's ludicrous he's not the man who turned down the beatles it's more like what's a less successful version of the beatles whoever whatever that is that's what he said no to and he was he was you know it could have gone the other way he wasn't the only one who said that just about every radio and media commentator said this is highly unlikely to work out and it was you know it, it was and i still look back now and say to duncan who hired me I don't get why you did this. Why would you put your career and legacy on the line for a British guy to go to Melbourne? You know, it doesn't make any sense looking back now. You know, in an industry that is quite slow and not very good at taking risks, and that's the same in the UK, same all over the world, it's really tightened up. It's a shame. Um, And it's wrong, and it's actually hurting radio. It's very easy to point to podcasts and go, yeah, 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 podcasts are getting bigger and stuff like that. I don't have to play adverts. It's like, well, they are playing adverts, but you've made it too easy for people to migrate, especially from morning radio, which is cookie-cutter approach by you know, insecure and not very well trained and coached and managers themselves that are limiting their show's reach, range, growth and success. But I'm going off on one now. Well, look, you, you know, we, we, we obviously sort of, I, I suppose one of the big questions was coming to Melbourne, big AFL city. So that yeah. was always the question, you know, the sort of sporting knowledge, which we'll, you know, maybe talk about that in a second. But the other, the other thing I've always wondered about is you are a big sports fan. You used to present mm. a show for the BBC called Fighting Talk in, in the UK, which I guess was where I first came across you. And it was such a good show. Yeah. I've always wondered, surely there's a space in the Australian market for a show a bit like that. Yeah. And on TV, um, watch this space. One of my favourite things I've ever done, TV or radio, was fighting talk. For people who didn't know what it was, what a great, simple idea. Every week, four really good talkers, comedians. I mean, we had, I had John Oliver on when he was just like a really good stand-up in the UK, but no one really knew who John Oliver was. You know, and the last time I saw John, he, 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 had a, he was buying a new suitcase, and he was in Soho in London. I said, what are you doing with that? He goes, oh, I've got a job for six weeks on John Stewart Daily Show. And he said, I'll see you in six weeks' time. It won't work out. And I went, yeah, all right, good luck. And then now, you know, he's he's smashing it. But, yeah, it was four really good talkers, and they would like, be really good sports pundits, ex-players, comedians, musicians. And it was a series of questions. And it was, you, you, I, get, I would give them points for punditry. By that, I mean outrageous uh, comments, smart ones. If there was any sitting on the fence or saying the obvious or a tired old cliche, they'd be marked down. And the scoring was wild, you know, with crazy sound effects like Monty Python. So you could, I would sometimes mark people down one million, you know, um, and I loved it. It was a great, funny, interesting. We'd, we'd have pop culture questions in about Madonna was in the news that week. I loved it. It had a real energy to it. It was 11 o'clock, o'clock on a Saturday morning, which is, you know, a couple of hours before all the kickoffs in the EPL. And there were a lot of players, a lot of big managers that would listen as well and would say to me and send me emails uh, going, I hated it when you started talking about me. Can you mark anyone down that does that again? And I loved it. I'd love to do it out here. I've always been a big sports fan. I've always tried to make, however I do, talk about sport on the radio, 
never about how a lot of people do it on TV or radio where they think that's how fans enjoy it. It's never about all the nitty gritty and the stats and stuff like that. There are some people who enjoy them, but I think it's a bit like wanking sometimes for the pundits. It's more for their own pleasure. I try to make sure I talk about it, how I talk to my own mates about sport, you know, and sometimes that can, that, that, I think that's more entertaining and interesting than trying to make out a pundit. So when I came here, it was, I realized straight away, this, I, I, I really need to get to grips with this because everyone here, it's a religion. It really is. And suddenly they're fearing that I'm an atheist. And I need to convince them that I'm a believer. I might not go to church every weekend, but I, I worship at the same altar. And it took a while because the sport's crazy. It doesn't make any sense at first to us Brits. It's like Mad Max. There's people running on the pitch with instructions. There's giant men in muscle tops and mullets just running into each other. You ask someone next to you, like, what, what's that rule? And they go, oh, I don't know. It's just about the spirit of the game. They don't know half the rules. And then at the end of a season, if they don't like them or find it boring, they change them. No other sport does this. Golf or cricket don't. But then when I saw more games, I really got into it. I'm genuinely a fan of it. I love watching it. And uh, But I'm always wary. I don't talk too much about it on the radio because I think sometimes it's trying too hard. And uh, I just know what my show is and what I think the audience want. And it isn't wall-to-wall footy coverage. There's enough of that on other shows. Well, obviously the book is, you know, a journey and part of it is the ratings journey. So you you came on air in June 2018. First set of ratings came through in the July and they, they were a pretty healthy 8.7 share, which was up slightly from what you inherited, which was 8%. Right from the get-go, gold went number one as a station in FM. Um, so your, um, you know, there was early progress and your show eventually went number one March 2020 with a 9.1 share. Now, reading the book, I, I do get the impression that you felt a bit like you were failing by not getting to number one straight away, number one FM. Um, how much of your professional worth, your professional self-worth, is actually tied up in that number? Because, you know, as I say, you came in at 8.7 and you went at number one with 9.1. It wasn't that much of a move in numerical times it feels like psychologically it meant a lot lot more yeah it's interesting none of my self-worth is about being number one and i remember having conversations with duncan and kieran on email before i got here because everything any lot of conversations about number one and i said i've i've never had those conversations with bosses i've got to number one but that's kind of taken care of itself there's a great uh, book by john woodham one of those successful sports coaches in the world called the results take care of themselves and i've always embodied that and so suddenly coming to a place where it was all about number one i found really irritating i didn't want to fucking hear it it was almost paralyzing i d- I, I could i could try and do what a number one show would sound like and be bloody awful it would be vanilla radio there's enough of those i'm i um at my best when i'm sticking to my own instincts and what's in my heart and so on and and, and radio i do my way and when i get into playing their game you, I, you'll never get the best from me um, and so it became for me really the number one thing was more something for management because then it just meant they'd leave me alone and they'd never interfered in the show at all. They'd left me alone. I built and hired everyone. Um, they left me alone with it, but it was always that kind of thing when the results came out, they're like, ah, oh, number three. And it was the way they said it that maybe next time. And so I had to keep telling myself and the team straight afterwards that that has no bearing on what we did today as a show. All right. It's not like they sat down five million people and said, let's raise the hands. It's still quite a flawed system. It's the, it's the system we have. It's the same in the UK. When it goes well, you think it's the most accurate system in the world. When it doesn't, you're very vocal about saying, what a strange way to do ratings. So the number one for me, it's, it's always nice to have success, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't make me enjoy radio any more or less. Um, no, it was more, I think, for management. I just wanted them, was them to have it. It also meant that I internally, it got me more tokens to when I needed stuff, it it brought me more leverage there. It was, it was a higher grade of fuel to keep the lights on and keep carrying on doing what I was doing. It brought me more, leave me alone, it's going well, just buy me lunch occasionally, a nice <laughs> bottle of wine, that'll do, see you in five weeks' time. It was more about that. It brought me more freedom. 
talk about the title. Why that title? Uh, you know what the thing is, right? Titles matter in books because even if you hear like an interview or someone talking about a book on a radio show, TV, what's the thing you, you go into Google and type is some of the title or two words of the title. It's not the author's name. You don't remember that. Titles matter. And even when I'm, I'm a massive, like I said, book nerd, when I'm in bookshops, I'm always looking at the front cover and the title. So suddenly when you're in that arena, I'm thinking, crikey, it's really got to pop out. And there are a lot of books by middle-aged men that are normally black and white, some forlorn-looking character, and you're looking off into the distance in your thoughts. And I thought, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that. And they're normally very macho colours, bright red, uh, or, they're, or they're blue, you know, we're, we're men. You know, this is confessional, but I'm still a man. It's blood on here, you know. And I spent, I drove the publishers nuts. I think we went through 28 different colour tones. I found the colour of the book, which is called, <laughs> if you're wondering, Peach Coral. And uh, I, uh, the title, though, came to me very early on the time here. My... My, I came home one day and my wife said, uh, Lois, our youngest daughter, who was 13 at the time, someone went, out to, went up to her at school today and said, no one listens to your dad's radio show. And my wife went, she's okay, you know. And she was like looking at me like, you're <laughs> not okay. And it was a time when the show was struggling and I was just thinking, this is a mistake. And I went up there and I, I started swearing. I said, I can't believe what that little shit said. And Lois went, hey, it's, it's okay. I thought it was funny. And then I started to do that thing. My ego kicked in. I'm going, look, you know, it was, I was always going to lose listeners. And then you'll game them. It takes time. It was like this in the UK many times. She's going, I've, I've had a look on our Facebook page. Mum told us that we weren't meant to go on the station Facebook page. Oh, why do they hate you? And I was like, I knew that I've been told not to go on there as well. But she was delighting it. She found it really funny. And I remember traumatic that I was thinking, Jesus Christ, I'm even being hassled now, trolled by a 13-year-old schoolgirl. I write, wrote it down straight on my, my phone. And what if I if if I ever get through this, if I ever, you know, Andy Dufresne crawling through that shit pipe to get out of the prison, if I ever get through this, I'm going to call it <laughs> No One Listens to Your Dad's Show. Because I thought, what a funny... Just a whole uh, that, that 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 that's a, whenever I tell anyone that story, they just laugh, and I just thought I might as well own it, and so I thought that that's the title, and so I am looking slightly forlorn on the front cover, mainly because two days before that photo shoot, I walked into a glass door and broke my nose and got concussion, and so I was still had a wee bit of concussion, and I remember they had to cake my nose in because uh, it it split. I think we had to Photoshop at the end because the more makeup you put on it, the work I looked like an ex-boxer or something t- telling his story, not some middle-aged sad sack DJ. So, yes, I <laughs> I know where that girl is. They're good friends now, and she gets a kick out the fact she's telling people I gave him that title. <laughs> she's going to school going, I came up with that. Idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm okay with that. And I suppose the thing about feedback i guess real world feedback but also social media feedback is it's it's a double-edged sword because i you know something i think we probably talked about last time we um we talked is the fact that you 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 try and respond to every social media message you 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 know you acknowledge it and obviously it's a great source of feedback but i suppose at the same time there must be an element of self-doubt and i'm i'm sure i remember you maybe on the Game Changers podcast, but one of them talking about how when you were doing stand-up comedy, you you actually got messages about that that kind of rocked your confidence a bit, but in the end, you were able to kind of incorporate into the act and find your voice. Um, how, do you, how do you stay sane whilst getting all of this feedback? You can't. It's a day-to-day thing, to be honest. And I speak as a guy who's been doing radio, breakfast radio, 23 years. And the biggest change in that time, really, in terms of how people interact with presenters, comedians, same with you as well, has been social media. You know, years ago, if you didn't like the DJ, you had to write a letter. You remember that? It takes ages to write a letter. And then by the time you found the stamp, you go, I'm not that fed up with him anymore just because he didn't say hello to my wife. Um, My emotions have changed. Whereas now, instant, got them, so-and-so at. Why don't you stick to playing songs, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And so I've got better at it. And also, I have to remind myself, I choose to stick my head above the parapet. I choose to do this because I love it. And also, I don't 
want my show to be for everyone. If I uh, if I tried to do a show like that, you know, we talked about trying to be number one. If I tried to do a show that's for everyone, it would be awful. There is enough radio, there's enough content out there trying to actually bring everybody in. And it is that thing about if you try and do it for everyone, you're really doing it for no one. It's too diluted. It's all the rough edges are smoothed off. And actually, I think my rough edges and are, as humans, rough edges. That's where all the interesting shit is for me to talk about and get other people to talk about. That, to me, is there's there's connection there. There's struggle. There's fallibility there's our funniest stories about when we fall on our face when you slip on a banana skin in life you know that vanity we all have you know that veneer that we're trying to uphold all the time we're always trying to present some version of ourselves to the world and yet the world always finds a way of humbling you that what's better than that talking about that and so yeah that kind of and it, it does it, it does sometimes on a bad day 20 past six in the morning on a monday you know, and you're a bit tired and you go, you go, oh, oh. And I just have to think, I just have to remind myself, yeah, there's probably someone who's in a really shit mood. They're not going to go to work and do a job that like me, that I love. It's not really, it is that thing of it isn't really about me. It's about something else that they're going through, really. Because if you were that happy at that moment in your life, what would you really care? One, if I'd irritate you in some way, but even if I had, you'd be like, oh, well, I hit scan. I'm not going to listen to him anymore. You move on that way. You deal with it that way. To then take the time to look me up on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, read back and spell check your own post and check it's angry enough and made your point. Check it and click send and go, yeah, that's told him. And then, then you get on with your day or do you wait for a reply or whatever like that. And that, that says more about what's going on at the other end. So I think the more I stay there, but oh God, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I, I even talked about the book. There was one day in the first year where this guy kept emailing, emailing him and emailing him. And I just went, stop being such a whiny dick. Don't listen. And then after the show, my boss said, can I have a word? <laughs> she went, close the door. I knew what it was. And I went, whiny dick? She went, yeah, <laughs> he's he's complained to me. I went, he proved my point. He's a, he's a whiny dick. She went, please don't do that. He could, you know, it's like, this could go viral. And I went, I st- I think most people that went viral, do, we should put it up on the posters right now. I think even people who don't like the thought of an English guy on the radio would at least go, that's too much. Just don't listen to him. They would actually feel sorry for me. I want to use this as a marketing campaign. You know, pommies have feelings too. <laughs> <laughs> I could have traded on that. So, yeah, it's a, Jim, it's a day-to-day thing because you're not an ego you know, you need the ego to get out of bed and, and go and think, people, I've got more things to say tomorrow. And then, you know, you, you're a human being. But, you know, if I'm expecting my advice to anyone who does any content, whether it's a blog or whatever, if you're expecting that other people, strangers, are going to validate you or some lack you feel in you, um, don't do that. There was a great quote I read by Jay Leno saying that, you know, this kind of industry will only ever break your heart. He said it's like falling in love with a uh, bad analogy, but falling in love with a stripper and then being surprised when she leaves you. I understood in the crude metaphor, I understood what he was saying. It's the same with this. It's not their job to validate me. You know, go and get a therapist if you, if you need help with that. Um, you know, it's that I always come back to, I always have a copy near me. It's on my phone, actually, on one of my photos of that amazing. Anyone who's struggling doing anything creative, this is the best thing I could share with you, is that amazing uh, poem. It's a quote. It's part of a speech, actually, but it's like a poem. Man in the arena. You know, it's not about being in the stands, that kind of thing. It's about getting your face bloodied and dirty and carrying on and showing up every day. That's that's what it's about, all of that. If you're going to walk this path of making something which is true to you and good intentions, it's going to hurt sometimes, but that is the path you're on and you have to hold yourself strong and steady sometimes. And as we talked about, it is, you know, the Australian market is an aggressive market as well. You you mentioned in the book this this obsession with uh, Sun Tzu, the art of war. Yes. Um, and the funny thing is, you know, I've talked to other program directors <laughs> who complain about one one radio company in particular that seems obsessed with with yes. competing in that you know and that you know this this other person mentioned the art of war as well oh, so no. it's everywhere. yeah what what is it about the australian radio industry that that makes it like that do you think 
I think it's uh, the, the, uh, Australians are very, very competitive. We are in the UK, but not quite as outwardly expressed. It's a simmering kind of thing, isn't it? You know, stiff upper lip and all that. Here, it's not. It's simmering and pouring out. You know, it's they are very competitive. They're very sporty. They take sport very seriously. They play to win, and that's very important to them. You know, that's what was like a national disgrace. They did very badly at the, the Olympics. They they actually hurt collectively. To us, we're so used to being losers. It's more like, well, yeah, of course. Why do we? Why do we ever think it was going to be different? I mean, how many times have we bang on about the World Cup? We won it once in nineteen sixty six. We're still going about it. Um, and so we used because we to because we both losing. instantly knew the date as well. Yes, sixty six. You know, and it's like that's why London twenty twelve, the Olympics. No one was more surprised than us. We were like, what would what do you mean we've none won another one? What is this thing I'm feeling called joy, you know, and national pride? It, 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 we didn't know how to deal with it. You know, it was this overpouring of success. So here they are used to being very good at sport. It really matters to them. I've seen it at school. You know, they have, my, my daughters have to pick a sport and do it. There's no, there's no sort of lolling around, feigning injury or faking sick notes like we did at school. Here, they have to pick a sport. They do it every Saturday. Every Saturday, my wife and I have to get up at half six, seven, take them to be beaten at some sport. But, you know, whether rowing, netball, footy, sport is very, very important. And I like that. I actually really like it. You know, it's very outdoors, healthy lifestyle here. And it trickles down into, into radio. And it's the same with TV. You know, I remember we got taken to a pub once and, I, and they were celebrating. It was in the really early days. They were celebrating the fact that my show had gone up 0.3%. Normally, I wouldn't even tell my team if it's just gone up 0.3%, right? <laughs> Here, they were high-fiving each other. And I went, oh, my God, this is not, we're celebrating 0.3. What are we going to do if I get a 1% increase? <laughs> do I get the year off a speedboat? What would, I, what would my life be like if I got 1%? Well, um, something we, we mentioned uh, or you mentioned earlier in the conversation is, you 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 you're very proud to already have the um the nationally networked show in the evening which is a, a, a effective sort of you know best of the morning show which um which I, I i'm pleased to say i i look back at what what i wrote when it was announced you were coming to australia and i'm glad to say i predicted it that you would you? it would end up being nationally networked but um you you also um referred in passing that you'd love to get something in the mornings as well that's that's heard live um is there a way of doing it how 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 could it be done well uh, you know in the uk you know with clive dickens and his team at absolute there they He's here in of, australia now of course yeah and you know clive did it years ago and i remember it took about three years. When Clive Dickens first said to me, listen, we're trying to work out, can you hit play and seven or eight different songs be played at the same time? A song from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, and and, and today. And I was like, never going to happen. And he never spoke about it for like two or three years. And then suddenly he just said, uh, it's ready for you to test out. I went, what is? He went, Project Banana. I went, what's Project Banana? He goes, remember that thing I told you about being live across all these networks? I went, it's called Project Banana. Why? He goes, let's not go into that. And I couldn't believe it. And at first, I over, I started to overthink it, going, it's going to really harm my show because I can't talk about the music or say that was, this is. But then I'm really on, a, I was always on a format that was 80s, 90s, you know, classic rock. You didn't really need me saying that Gimme Shelter was Gimme Shelter from the Rolling Stones or This Is an Oasis song. Most people were up to speed with those songs. We weren't playing brand new music. And so actually it was a real bonus to listeners. You could flick around. You could look at the next four songs I was going to play on on your phone. And like, oh, I love a bit of the 70s, a bit of the 80s, a bit of 90s, or I just listen on 80s. And it, it it was a real game change because TV and how we watch TV has changed. Smart TVs have got smaller and smaller and the picture quality, you know, OLED and 4K. Radio, how we consume radio and experience, it hasn't really gone through any big changes. This was a real pioneering change because there was no benefit to me. It was all about people listening. You can hear all 80s music if you want. It stuck with me, but just 80s music. You don't have to hear any of the 70s stuff or Oasis or anything like that. 
And so it was amazing. I, I loved it, and it, it grew the show nationally. And I've always said I'd love to do something like that here. It does exist in other places. Um, we are in talks. I don't know quite yet if we can or how it will be, but I still think I love the national show, but I still think I'm best at what I do being enjoyed live in the moment, and that is breakfast time. Mm. Um, now, I suppose one of the things about being in Melbourne was you had a pretty extraordinary time of it in that you were in Melbourne for for the bushfire emergency, then COVID, um, which I, I guess was a pretty unique responsibility being on air during Melbourne's big uh, COVID lockdown. Um, I think probably because you, you 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 drive the desk, you, you you actually press all the buttons for your own show. So I imagine you were probably the only one who was allowed in the building. It must have been a pretty unusual broadcasting experience. Yeah, it was actually, but I'll always be grateful for it. What an honour to be someone's friend in the morning um, during the bushfires and then during uh, a global a global pandemic and in a city, Melbourne, that was really affected by it. Um, you know, the second lockdown over four months, you know, and less people listening, you know, no school run. Suddenly ratings go. And I remember very early on, having a meeting with the team going, we're going to have to learn some new lessons. The way we do the show, it's going to have to change. I don't yet quite know what that is. And I would spend quite a lot of time just thinking about what do they actually need from us right now? What do they need? Let's forget about what we're putting the show together and putting it out there. That 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 world right now, to an extent, is gone. We now to, need to do the show with the, the things that are important to me and my team. And what is that? What do they need from us right now? They needed hope. I, I, I made a conscious decision very early on. We weren't, a lot of other shows were leaning heavily into having a go at the authorities, which is all fine. And we were right to be angry, but I just saw everyone was doing that. Everywhere I went, you went for a coffee. They were going, oh, I can't believe that Scott Morrison's not done this and Dan Morrison's done that. And it's a conspiracy theory. And this is, you know, I was doing that and they were all doing it on social media. I was like, I'm not going to do that in the morning. That is anger. It goes nowhere. My job is hope, joy, trying to find laughter, to, uh, reflecting their experience, being a space for them to talk about it and support that. And whenever we can help them and asking people to look out, or there's anyone who's having a tough time at the moment, we might be able to help out. It was doing more of that. Um, and suddenly I realized as someone who his his personal life is his, his act, I remember thinking, what the what the fuck am I going to talk about now for three hours, five days a week? There's nothing funny going on. The kid's having a tough time. You know, it's like, where is it? And then, but there was stuff to talk about. And actually talking about that, my kids are struggling. My wife and I are struggling. We're struggling to find any time to actually have any um, quality time together in the bedroom because you've got your bloody kids at home. We could, we, uh, uh, you know, I remember one point we, we were driving around actually thinking about maybe trying to have a kiss and a cuddle in a car park. And right, you know, like you would in your twenties. And I was thinking, if we got caught, I'm not sure if this is a good or bad story. Trying to, you know, in a, in a car in a car park, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite. Do we need to wear masks? Let's just do it COVID safe. Um, so, so just talking about that, and so it became a different way of just responding more about what do they need. Let's forget about like how we're going to do show. What's labour night? Like? Laughter became really important. Every day, I, we'd get phone calls and people going, thank you for being there. That's our job. I, I, I was kind of like uh, confused at first. And I thought, right, it's we, we now really matter. And I remember Andy Lee called me after hearing one show. And he went, I so wish me and Hayne were back on the radio right now because you really matter. Radio is really important. You just made me smile. And I need that right now. And so we really doubled down on everything we did on the show and I constantly kept saying, if there's any way we can help, please let us know. And I meant it as well. It wasn't just a gimmick. And then I got an email one night. I read all the emails that come in. You never know what you might see. Even in an email moaning or it's some dull old story, it might be a job title I see at the end and go, what the hell is that? And then go, you know, I can use that tomorrow. There's a phone in. Have you got a strange job title? And I saw an email from someone. She was a nurse on one of the COVID hospitals really struggling and she said hey christian um i heard you saying if there's anything you can do uh we just need bottles of water and energy drinks powerade can you help out and i was so humbled so it, it's a very simple thing isn't it asking someone for some water 
you know, and they're like 13 hours a day in PPE gear. They haven't got time to go down to the canteen. Time is of the essence. They're running, running between beds at the time. And so I read it out on air the next day and the phone lines, as cliche when people like me go, the phone lines were jammed for hours and they really were. There were people who weren't working, who were struggling financially saying, I'll shout them three or four power aids. And I, you know, I can even get emotional now thinking about it. And I was like, isn't this amazing how actually we're hardwired to want to help? And it grew and it grew and it grew. And he had officers ringing in going, well, look, we'll donate $500. How much power aid does that get? And then I remember the next day I got an email from the head of marketing uh, at Coles. It said, hello, we're Coles. We can help out. And I was like, yeah, brilliant. You can. But thank you. Thanks for stepping forward. And within a week, four and a half thousand care packs went out to, I think, about 18 COVID hospitals. And in these care packs, about $200 each one was, it was even stuff like dry shampoo, deodorant. We were asking doctors and nurses, what do you actually need? It was instant coffee, all that stuff. You don't even think about deodorant. You know, um, it was all stuff we just take for granted. They wanted that. And this all came from one nurse stepping forward going, can you help us out? I just We just need some drinks. And the listeners snowballed it. And then people just wanted to help. Being a part of that um, was, was humbling. You know, being able to use your microphone. I spend so much time talking about my silly ideas and, and all that. It was really nice to be able to use that to actually serve, to give something back, which is something which I'll always look for. It's not something I'm going to plan every day. It's time for because I can't. Then it's not genuine, and I hate that kind of. It's Wednesday morning, ten past eight. It's crew to the rescue because it's not coming from a genuine place. It's a it's a story arc. It's a benchmark, and I've known I've known people used to work on those shows where they would go through the newspapers looking for miserable stories, you know. And it's kind of your next thing is you're hanging around a graveyard looking for people crying, going, <laughs> and it, and it's kind of like. But when someone does come forward to me or I see something, I think this is, we can do something here, then then I then I will. And those emails do come to me and I do read them and go, right, okay, th- this is something which uh, we can help with. So um, you, you, you mentioned in the book that um, when you first came to Australia, you signed a three-year deal. Presumably by now you must be into the next one. So I'm guessing you're going to be around for, for the foreseeable. Yeah, I actually think even if I die, um, they've got enough of me on tape now. You know, it'll be like weekend at weekend at Burnley's. <laughs> you wouldn't even hear me on air for the 10 years. Yeah, they were – They, do you know what? I'll always credit uh, Aaron with this. Before the show ever got to number one, they tore up that contract. They liked what they heard. I was doing what they thought I would do, and um, they gave me a new deal then, and that, that meant so much to me that it wasn't like a knee jerk to like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. We always knew get to number one. It's a nice shiny new deal. It was it was before that. It was about six months before that. Um at the time I had just bought a house. And I remember there used to be a conspiracy theory that there were content directors that the moment that they knew the breakfast guy was about to buy a house, they would go, how about we do a new deal? And they knew that they'd always be really vulnerable and get them at a knockdown cost because they just so even though I was excited, I suddenly heard that about, hang on a minute. They know it. They know I'm buying a house. (laughs) (laughs) Never tell your boss, right? If you work in radio, never tell them you're buying a house. You know, even if they go, I saw you've got removal men outside the front of your house. No, no, that's for the neighbor. That's not mine. I am not moving house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and hey um the uh, the other thing in the book that i thought you were you, you you um showed some vulnerability around was um that element of loneliness you know sort of coming to a a new country um and starting again um you know and i i hey look i guess i did the same thing a couple of times went to Dubai then came to Australia and those first few months are hard when you don't have particularly as a middle-aged man where you don't have a network and the usual habits or the person to go for a drink for and um and I presume for someone in in your position where you've got a bit of a profile as well it's probably even harder yeah I had no idea it wasn't until like the first Friday or two when normally you might text a friend go hey you fancy early doors it's a very UK, uh, uh, British phrase there, early doors, which means early doors means a bit like five o'clock. Have a couple of beers and you go home at seven o'clock and you get a takeaway and you're okay. And suddenly it was like, oh, 
I, I didn't even think about that element of it. I'm like, I've got no, I've actually got no mates, especially as things were really tough then. And there was that stubborn pride. I didn't want to ring friends back home. I wanted them to think I was doing really well. I didn't want to go, you know, step forward and go, I'm, I'm really lonely, you know? And so, yeah, God, the first couple of months were horrendous. My, what made it worse was my wife. Women make friends much easier. They got the sisterhood. They were always recruiting. Middle-aged men, they haven't got time to see their own mates. They're terrible, terrible at making arrangements. My wife would come back from walking our dog. Three new phone numbers. And I remember there's just been, there were so many couple of really humiliating things. I remember, I remember once being in an Uber with my wife, and I was getting on really well with the driver. He'd moved here a couple of years ago from Canada. Right, and he was into British comedy. And in it, we were getting on really well. You know, we are just hitting off with somebody. My wife texted me saying, get his number. I went, I can't, God, I can't, I can't ask him out. You know, this is, it's odd, you know? So my wife gets out the Uber before me, giving me the look like, ask him for his number. And I think, I don't have any choice. I go, hey, we should uh, meet up for a uh, pizza sometime. I don't even know why I said pizza. And immediately he looked at me like, what? And he looked, he, did, he just didn't, and it was straight away, he does not, he does not want to take this to second base. And, he sort of got his phone around reluctantly, and then I texted him a couple of hours. I waited a couple of hours, playing it cool, like you do, you know, on a date. And I said, hey, really enjoyed chatting to you. Let's meet up for a beer. No pizza this time. He, to this day, Tim, he's never applied. And I remember being so crushed. Like, I can't even get an Uber driver to come out for a beer with me. And so it took – I had no idea. The loneliness was really hard because you need your mates to sometimes just go in for a beer with and go, bloody hell, this is nuts. Wait till you hear what, what's happened this week at home or on the show or some of these messages, you know, and there's a release in that. And so I, I really, I did struggle. I was, I was really, really lonely. And my wife kept saying, you know, why don't you, why don't you go back into work on a Friday at five o'clock and see if the sales guys want to go for a beer? I went, no one likes that guy. It's creepy. It smells of divorce. So I'm going to rock up, reeking of aftershave, rocking my leather jacket going, hey guys, you know, you're David Brent, aren't you? Hey guys, you know, anyone going down the pub? Hey, anyone fancy a beer? Oh, is that what you call it here? Got the old footy ball on tonight. People are looking like, who is this wanker? You know, it just smells of, it's like animals. Men smell desperation. They don't want that from me. You know, it was, it was, a, it was a lonely old couple of months. Whenever I talk about this, two things happen, right? Women start laughing because they get it. I'm like, oh my god, yeah, my husband's ne he never goes out with his own friends. Oh my god, it must be really hard. It's like one of those unspoken areas about male loneliness. My wife even said at one point, Why don't you see if there's any apps for men to hang out? I went, There are. But I said, I'm not, I don't want that kind of hanging out, but maybe, maybe I'll have to do that. You know, turn up on these kind of male dating apps going, Hey, I'm not looking for anything physical. I'm just lonely. Just hug me, actually. <laughs> and speaking of David Brent or Ricky Gervais, um, Stuff of Legends, uh, your, 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 your podcast that you created in the, a, a, a few months back, that feels to me like as much as anything, it was a passion project. A hundred percent. It has to be. You know, if you're doing something outside the radio show, I've got to justify why am I not spending time on, the t on that. And so it was something which had been around for eight or nine years. I love interviewing people. But I'm always aware at breakfast time, you're looking at the clock. Even on a pre-recorded interview, I'm still looking at the clock thinking, I'm going to have to cut this down. I'll chop here. I'll edit out here. We'll take a song. There's an ad break. Got to come back. So it's, it's, it always has to, you know, I'm always aware of what my job is and I cut the cloth accordingly. But I love interviewing people and I don't want it every day on the radio show. Sometimes it's not right for them, you know, but I've always wanted to find something that had a format to it. The world does not need another podcast where someone like me chats to someone about where they get their ideas from and all that. There's about 2 billion of those and growing. If I was going to add to those polluted waters and overpopulated waters, sorry, because there are some really good ones like Mark Maron's great. I love Dax Shepard, Tim Ferriss. There's some brilliant ones. It needs to be something different. And so the idea was I'd always, I'd always thought there's an idea in people just talking about two or three objects they try and tell me the story of their life in two or three objects. So really what it, it is, in essence, is less an interview. It's storytelling. And I love that. But actually, when you start to talk about 
the objects that mean something to you in your life. It's not about how much money they're worth. It's a, it opens up something about you. And when we're talking about something which is really personal, it becomes somehow universal. And I did a few sort of demos of it and I loved it. It was like really revealing. And so doing it here, you know, like Ricky, I, I must have interviewed over 30 times. Ricky Gervais telling stories that I've never heard him tell before, you know, and it was, and even a couple of times he said, oh, I've never even told Jane this one, his partner he's been with since he was at university. So it was them suddenly hearing stories for the first time. And that to me is gold. What's not great about that? And hearing people like Hamish Blake, I was apprehensive. I, I love Ham and he's a dear friend, but I thought, would he really connect into this or it would just be too jokey? Because he is, he's not one of the world's funniest men. And, but he really dropped into it. And that was like one of my favorite chats because it showed, I, I now know more about Haim than I ever would have done if we'd had like 10 nights out. You wouldn't tell those stories. Why would they come up about his granddad and what he learned from his granddad? And so, yeah, it was really, I really, really enjoyed it. I'll do more this year. I also, through writing a book, I, I'm, I'm still toying with this idea. It's very, very early. Um, the more I talk to parents and mums and dads, um, I do think there might be a podcast uh, for parents and this will not be any advice from me, more therapy, more confessional, more just really honest. There's a lot of podcasts out there, you know, trying to sort of give you this perfect vision of what it's like to be a parent. None of them are really that honest about what it's really like. And I think there might be something out there that I'd, I'd love to do, maybe. Who knows? We'll wait and see. It's just an early start of something at the moment because, like I say in the book, and like I'm saying to you, Tim, there'll be two. There'll be two types of me as a dad up until twelve, and then the moment they hit thirteen, everything. My job description changed without any consultation, you know. And I had to learn some new skills, and that was really hard, you know. About what do they again? What do they need from me right now? The stuff that they'd needed before, it wasn't work anymore. Suddenly they were they weren't even there, those children. They were changing and growing, and I needed as a dad to do the same. And I, I whenever I talk to people now who are going through it, where I was, say, two years ago, I keep thinking, Oh, there's some there's something here, there's something funny, there's something irrelevant. Maybe there is a way of getting an expert on who can give actual proper advice quickly as well. So yeah, again, another passion project. Um, maybe don't know, we'll wait and see. Well, final um, uh, question for this one. There's loads more I could ask, but we're almost out of time. Um, so two years ago when we did the last Umbrella cast, I, I asked you what success looked like, and it was it was mainly not having to go home and take the family home from Australia. Um, how would you update now? What does success look like from here? i tell you what it is. It's, in my mind, I have... In my mind, I have, I, I do, I have intentions about what I hope my show stays true to, right? Otherwise, it's just a collection of links. I have to have, I do, I have things that I think, a couple of words that I think, you know, every morning I look at them and I kind of think, I, I, this is, this is roughly what the show's about in me. And, you know, the producers know what they are and I know what they are. Otherwise, you are just a collection of random links. And my show is still a collection of random links at times. But it does feel some central thing to it. There's some things that are very, very important to me. When I see people emailing me and they use some of those words, that is the the that's everything. They are getting from it what I hoped, what I'm putting into it. And that that is what success is about. And recently, the last couple of weeks, people have been emailing me saying, I pre-ordered your book. I'm really looking forward to reading it. You know, I love how you someone said that you wear your heart on your sleeve. And I emailed that person back. I always email everyone back. And I said, you know what? I, I really need to hear that right now. Because actually, <laughs> if, it's, if it's like that on air, this book is it's heart on page. And I said, I'm scared. And I got this lovely email conversation with a stranger who's not a stranger. And mate, I can't tell you what that means. I, you know, I hope I've nailed in the book that actually you don't need to move the other side of the world to find a greater a well of happiness it comes through accepting risk the unknown vulnerability when you are when you're working in those areas you're right at the edge of yourself and your life and they're terrifying but when you're there only great things happen the other side of it and so success for me is continuing that 
I'm, I've only been here three years in a breakfast show life cycle. It's very young. I'm building. I haven't made it. Um, I know the numbers are bounce up and down. And I accept that. I embrace it. But I'm building something here, and I hope I can really carry on building that. You know, it means a lot to me that we have a national best of show in the evening. I would like to take the show and be available to more people at breakfast time. I don't know how that will happen when talks at the moment, but I really would. It's not about being number one all over Australia, but I just want more people, if they want something a bit different at breakfast time, to be able to just um, join us if we want. that That's what I'd really love. That's what success is for me, is I guess staying, still evolving, still leaping into the unknown, still taking those risks. I'm doing that with the book coming out. There'll be another couple this year, and there must be. You know, I've got this picture in my office of Evil Knievel, and he's taking a leap. And he, he, he was terrible at land and he, he crashed more times. But I was always as a kid obsessed with him taking the leap. And that's what I think in our lives, if we can take more leaps, you never know what might happen. So yeah, more leaping. That's what success looks like now. Well, the book is called No One Listens to Your Dad's Show and it's on sale now. Christian, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, I always enjoy talking to you. You're a very, very good interviewer, Tim. Thank you. Bless you, sir. You're very kind. And Christian O'Connell will be joining us at Mumbrella 360 next month. He'll explore what it takes to create a number one radio show and the birth of his passion project podcast, Stuff of Legends, which we were just talking about. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 to find out more. That's it for today, though. We'll be back on Thursday with our analysis of today's radio ratings numbers. <laughs> <laughs>